So we're starting Habakkuk this morning, um, reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'll let um, Jackson say his name the right way. (laughs) The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Good morning. How do you like our new floor? Just wait a week. Next week, we'll have a new vinyl floor down, which will be great. Welcome back to the Ukraine team. They had a great trip, and uh, we're glad they're back. Praise God for the things he did. Yeah, give me a hand. We look forward to having a vision lunch and hearing all about what God did on their trip. And it's good to see all of you here. We have several hundred people up at family camp this weekend, so it's good to see so many of you showed up. Awesome. When my daughter was five, she looked at her one-year-old brother and said, I have Jesus in my heart, and Jordan has a little Jesus in his heart. (laughs) Makes sense, you know, small frame, he has a little Jesus. But it raises a question for us. How big is your Jesus? How big is your God? Is he big enough to handle the mess of life? Is God really big enough to handle the hard questions that plague every one of us off and on in life? 
Or do you keep a really limited view of God because it feels somehow safer to have a God that you can understand and fit into a, into a box? When my friend Corvin, who broke his neck almost four years ago now in a bicycle accident, and shortly after that he came to Christ, it was a wonderful thing how God brought him to the Lord. I spent several years meeting with him almost weekly, and as we talked about life and wrestled with things, we, we talked a lot about the fact that he was having this severe neurological pain that the doctors could not cure, and he had tried everything. And it went on for three and a half years. And I confess that for me it kind of rocked my world because I prayed so often that God would take away that pain, would at least relieve it to some degree, and it seemed to get worse over time. Eventually God did take him home in a sudden heart attack this spring. Eventually he relieved the pain, but it kind of, again, rocked my world with, God, who are you? I prayed, so many have prayed. How long, O Lord, will he have to suffer? And why did he have to suffer as long as he did? Why did the pain go on and on? We all, at some point in our life, face those two big questions. (laughs) How long and why? How long, O Lord, is this going to go on? And and why is this happening? I long for an explanation. This struggle, this pain, this ungodliness, this evil, which seems to win. And when we're confronted with those questions, we are confronted face-to-face with the lack of control we have in life, aren't we? (laughs) That we really can't control what goes on. And we're also confronted with our inadequate views of God. We realize that somehow our views of God aren't big enough to really explain what's going on. So we have a choice. Either we blindly hang on to our own narrow Sunday school view of God. God, you must be this way. And so I'm just going to ignore reality. Or as many of us do, we think God you're not who I thought you were and I don't really want you. So we just kind of turn our backs on God. But there's a third choice. The choice we see in our book today, in the book of Habakkuk. Where Habakkuk, instead of doing either of those things, he, he turns to God and he lets God expand his view of who God is. I think for all of us at times we discover our God is too small. (laughs) He's not big enough to really worship. He's not big enough to handle the struggles of life. Habakkuk was facing those same choices and what he learned as he faced a God that was bigger than he ever imagined is this. This is kind of a summary of the whole book. The answer to our why is a who. It's, it's God. It's coming face to face with a God that's bigger and more awesome than we've ever imagined. 
So that's my challenge for us today as we look at this book, that our eyes might be opened and we might see that God is far bigger than we ever imagined. Pray with me. Lord, we confess that the whys and the how longs of life are really tough for us and challenge us and challenge our faith and our view of you. And we pray that as we look at this wonderful little book together over the next three weeks that our eyes might be opened and expanded to understand more of who you are and what it means to cling to you when we don't understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first four verses, we see the cry of Habakkuk's heart. This is an unusual book. It's the only book of the, among the prophets where you see a prophet not bringing a message from God, but dialoguing with God, struggling, complaining to God. The name Habakkuk or Habakkuk in Hebrew would be literally pronounced Habakkuk, that guttural Habakkuk, but I'd rather not use it because it sounds too much like I'm a kook. And uh, that may be true, but I'd rather not announce it to the world. So... Uh, <laughs> We'll just go with either Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Either one is fine. If you want to turn there, it's the fifth book from the end of the Old Testament. So it's stuck in there between Nahum and Zephaniah. We studied over the last couple weeks the book Haggai. And Haggai wrote in 520 B.C. after the exile to Babylon as he wrestled with the people's failure to rebuild the temple. And he challenged them to do so. But as we look at Habakkuk, we are stepping back in history another hundred years to 620 or so B.C. It's before the exile. So Habakkuk is looking forward to the time that God is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And he brings a message from God to them, to the people, as he looks ahead to that time of judgment Habakkuk was living in a time in Israel when it was a, a time of real moral decline. Over the previous couple hundred years, the morals had been continuing to decline. It was a time of difficulty economically, morally, in every way. The country, the nation of Judah, was getting more and more corrupt. The nation of Israel had already been taken away by Assyria about a hundred years before, and now just the nation of Judah was left, but it was getting worse and worse, more and more injustice. And so you see Habakkuk in that culture, in that time, as a righteous man who loved God and was following God, crying out to God and saying, How long? Listen to verse 2. How long shall I cry for help, O Lord, O Yahweh, and you not hear? Or cry to you, Violence! Look around, see the violence, God, and you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity, he goes on. But in verse 2 he says, how long? He cries out to God about the mess he sees all around him in his country, among his fellow Israelites. And he says, how long, how long till you answer my prayers? How long till you deal with the sin in our land? How long till you deal with the violence? That word for violence can be defined this way. To bring injury to others by violating the moral law. 
to bring injury to others by violating the moral law. It could be through abuse of all kinds. It could be through oppression. It could be through actual violence, crime, etc., usually done for personal gain. And so Habakkuk looks at what's going on in his culture, all this violence, all this injustice, and he says, how long is... Are you going to put up with this, God? Don't you care? This is the cry of a heart that anguishes over a fallen world, over a broken nation, where over and over people do harm to one another. Think about our own country. In the last number of years, through abortion, we have destroyed millions of innocent lives violently taken. Crime and oppression is all around us. We live in a country where their systems perpetuate poverty and do harm to the poor. We give aid to countries that are starving and that aid is rotting in warehouses while the rich get richer and the poor are dying. Evil men like Joseph Kony in Uganda, in the name of God, leader of the Lord's army, he claims, pillages, rapes, displaces hundreds of thousands of refugees from their villages, from their homes, and it goes on and on. How long, O Lord, are you going to let this go on? God doesn't make sense. Why don't you do something? And then in verse 3, he goes on to the second question. Why? Why do you make me see this awful iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Why, God? Why do you let this stuff go on? Why do I have to look at it? Everywhere I turn, people are in conflict, he says. There's violence. There's whether you look on a home level, in a marriage, or wherever, or on a national level, there's conflict, there's violence, there's struggle. People do harm to one another. There's more wars in the last hundred years than in all of history combined, more people killed in wars, more genocide than ever, conflicts, arguments, fighting everywhere. Why? Why, O oh Lord? And Habakkuk cries out. He has a heart for God. He's a godly man, but he just doesn't get it. So he says, how long? Why? Why is there so much evil? And why, Lord, do you not just step in and end evil in the nation of Judah? Don't you care, God? In verse 4, he adds to this by giving... And, and so this is what I experienced. The law is paralyzed. The Torah the absolute standard you've given, God, your guideline is paralyzed. It's ignored. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. He says, justice, you can't find justice in my culture. And if it does go forth at all, it's always twisted. It's bent. It's perverted for someone's personal gain. Much like our world, isn't it? Where we used to have a standard of right and wrong, the law, the, the absolutes. And now we've kind of lost our guideline that the Constitution is being ignored. 
The Ten Commandments are being ignored. There's no absolutes. Everything's relative in our culture. Everything's malleable. So right and wrong doesn't seem to exist in our culture, in America today. All that seems to matter is who has the power. A commentator on the Trayvon Martin-George Zimmerman trial where Trayvon Martin was killed and George Zimmerman was recently acquitted, made this comment, this commentator, he said, this whole trial was not about finding truth. It was simply about winning. Now, I don't know enough about the trial to make any kind of a judgment about that, but that's representative for how many people feel about justice in our culture. And I'm sure many of you feel that way. It's, where is justice? Can, where do we find it? So Habakkuk is a righteous man who's struggling with having to live in such an ungodly culture. And we're in a similar situation today, aren't we? The moral decline is so rapid right now. As one commentator put it, he described our culture this way. While the stage is set for a global holocaust, an unsuspecting home audience fiddles a happy tune. The nation's moral fiber is being eaten away by a playboy philosophy that makes personal pleasure the supreme rule of life. Hedonism catches fire while homes crumble. Crime soars while the church sours. Drugs, divorce, and debauchery prevail and decency dies. Frivolity dances in the streets. Faith is buried. In God we trust has become a meaningless slogan stamped on corroding coins. Powerful, but a very apt criticism of our culture today, isn't it? The culture that you and I live in. But what I appreciate is what Habakkuk does. He takes his struggles, his questions to God, and he takes them directly to God and says, God, I don't get it. How long? Why? He lays his heart before God. And let me just say, one of the messages of this book is that God is big enough to handle our questions. Don't hide from God because you struggle. Don't be afraid to be honest with Him. Be respectful, yes. But be honest as well. And I love the way Habakkuk is honest. God can handle your deepest questions, your deepest struggles, your deepest doubts. So that's the complaint, the cry of Habakkuk's heart. And then, then we have God's shocking answer as God responds to him in verses 5 through 11. Listen to verse 5. Look among the nations and see, God says, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, if told. <laughs> Notice what God says in that verse. He essentially is saying... Um, Here's my answer, Habakkuk, and it's nothing you would expect. My ways are not your ways. You'll be astounded at how I'm going to answer your prayer. Don't you find that's often true? You cry out to God with a question or a doubt or a struggle, and 
His answers to our prayers often don't fit our expectations. They don't fit what we long for him to do. They don't fit what we think he should do. The question then becomes, are we going to continue to trust him and look to him like Habakkuk does, or will we turn away and reject him? I find that there's many, many believers who at this point quit praying because they've prayed to God about some difficulty, some struggle in their lives. They've cried out to God like Habakkuk does, and God doesn't answer in the way they think he should or they don't understand his answer or he doesn't seem to answer. And so they simply quit praying. If that's where you are today, I just challenge you to not turn your back on God that way, to turn back to him and take your struggles and your questions to him. God is big enough to handle them. And he wants us to come to him. So in verses 6 through 11, God's answer is this. Um, here's how I'm going to deal with sin in Judah. I'm bringing the ungodly Babylonians to judge Judah. And boy, Habakkuk, they are bad. (laughs) Talk about injustice. Talk about violence. These guys are far worse than anything you've seen in Judah. That's my answer. And notice how he describes that to Habakkuk. He says, verse 6, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, another name for Babylon, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He describes their character this way. These guys are bad. (laughs) And let me say something, just, this is Hebrew poetry. I, I know we often read the Old Testament and we, half of the Old Testament nearly is, is poetry and to understand it, we need to understand a little bit how Hebrew poetry works. It's got a lot of figures of speech. It's very dense. It's meant to slow us down. So when you read Hebrew poetry, you need to use your imagination and imagine the figures of speech and what the author is trying to communicate through those and in a sense emotionally experience that because the poetry is meant to arouse emotion in us through the powerful figures of speech. So he says Babylon is a bitter nation like you'd eat a bitter herb and he says they bring bitterness everywhere they go. They're a hasty nation. You can't slow them down. You can't reason with these guys. They run right over people. They're terrifying. They're dreaded. They're fearsome. And it says their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They, they decide right and wrong. They decide what's right. They don't listen to anybody else. They make their own rules. This is a sign of real evil, ungodliness. And then in verse 8 through 11, he describes their conduct. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. 
He says this is what they're like. Their horses come in hordes, but they're so fast, they're like leopards coming after you. They're like wolves, they're like eagles. All of these hunt down their prey and kill them and devour them, tearing them apart. He wants God here to Habakkuk says, boy, think about how bad these guys are. Imagine being run down by a leopard or by a wolf. Just a little over a week ago in our paper was given the story of a biker from Spokane, Washington, Mac Holland, who was biking as a fundraiser on his way to Alaska with a couple friends, and he was about a half mile ahead of his friends, and as he was biking, suddenly a wolf came out from the forest and began to chase him. He rode, he was enough ahead of his buddies that they didn't see what was going on, and as he rode, this wolf would come up to him and began to try to bite his heel, and then chewed on his packs on the back of his bike and ripped it open so that his tent pegs began to fall. But he was riding as fast as he can to try to get away from this wolf that was hunting him down. He was terrified. At first, Holland tried to outrace the wolf, but the predator reeled him in with the ease of a peloton erasing the lead of a dope-free breakaway rider. <laughs> I like the way he put that, by the way. The wolf nipped at the bike's rear packs the way it would bite the hamstrings of a fleeing moose in the drawn-out ordeal of subduing large prey. Holland, who was prepared for grizzly encounters, blasted the wolf with bursts of bear spray on several occasions. He said the wolf would fade back 20 feet or so and then move up again. As I came around a corner to my horror, I saw a quick incline and knew that I would not be able to stay in front of this wolf for much longer. It was a surreal moment to realize I was the prey and this hill was the moment. Four times cars came by, looked at him, and did not stop. Finally, an RV came around the corner and he said, I, this was my last chance. I got in the middle of the road and waved and tried to, tried to, keep, tried to get him to stop. Finally, the driver passed me but then stopped right away. I, it says, I don't know how I unclipped my bike, but I swear I hurtled the handlebars without missing a beat or letting go of my can of bear spray. I got to the back door of the RV screaming. The door was locked. In an absolute panic, I began to climb in the passenger window, but the driver reached across and threw the door open. By the time I shut the door, the wolf was already on my bike, pulling at the shredded remains of my tent bag. Holland said he began to shake and cuss uncontrollably. Just gives you a picture of what Babylon was like. The terror, the panic, as they're moving in. They sweep through, it says, like the sand, scooping up captives. City walls, kings, they laugh at kings, God says. They laugh at city walls. They push through like the wind. Nothing stops them. God says, this is my answer to your prayer for justice. Habakkuk. 
Ultimately, these are guilty, evil men who are idolaters. They worship their own strength rather than the true God. Can you imagine getting a message like this? I mean, essentially, it's like God saying, oh, you, you're concerned about the ungodliness in America today? You should be. In fact, I'm going to bring judgment on it. And in fact, I'm going to bring the terrorists in. I'm going to bring the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And they will come in and they will take over your country. And you think you're experiencing injustice now. It is going to be far worse. You think 9-11 was bad? (laughs) It's going to be far worse than that. What do you do with an answer like that? Whoa, wait, wait a minute, God. <laughs> yeah, I want justice, but this, this is not what I was thinking. <laughs> this is not what I had in mind. How should we respond when God doesn't make sense? When he chooses to do something outside the bounds of what we know about him or think we know about him. God, how do we, how do we deal with this? I think Habakkuk's a wonderful example in the next few verses. Verses 12 through 15 as he wrestles with this. And the first thing he does in verses 12 and 13 is he reminds himself of what he does know about God. Listen to verse 12 and following. Are you not from everlasting? O Yahweh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, how can you bring a more ungodly nation to judge us? At least we have a few righteous people here. How can you do this? But what I love is he he reminds himself of what he knows about God. He says, you are from everlasting. You are eternal. You've always been in control. Nothing's a surprise to you, God. You're not limited by time. You're infinite. And you're working out a bigger plan than I can see. And notice how he says, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Those personal pronouns, first person. He says, Essentially what he's doing is he's reminding himself that you are Yahweh. You are the personal God of Israel. You've made a covenant with us, God. And I'm reminding you of that covenant. (laughs) You promised we wouldn't die as a nation. And so he claims that truth. We will not ultimately die. Doesn't mean they won't be judged, but he may only save the remnant, but... He's faithful and loving and true to his people. He reminds himself that he's holy. God is pure. God is righteous. Cannot tolerate evil. He's worthy of praise and worship. And he's sovereign. He says, God, you appointed Babylon to judge us. You're in control. You are sovereign. This is from your hand. They have no independent power. You are over them. So as he reminds himself of all these characteristics he knows of God, then he says, okay, God, this is how I understand you, so how can you use this nation to judge us? I don't get it. 
It, it doesn't make sense to me because as he goes on in verses 14 through 17, he says, because Babylon really is bad. They're, they're like fishermen and they take a net and they drag a net taking, captivating whoever they want. And then verse 1 of chapter 2 is a wonderful picture. He says, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the, wa- on the tower and look out to see what he, Yahweh, will say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaint. He waits on God to answer. He reminds himself of what he knows about God. He says, yeah, but this situation doesn't fit, God, what I know about you, so I need a bigger picture of you. I need you to reveal yourself to me because I don't get it. You see, God's plan is always to reveal more of himself to us. When we're confused, when God doesn't make sense to us, he wants to reveal himself to us because for every one of us, to some degree, our God is too small. J.B. Phillips, Englishman who wrote a wonderful little translation, paraphrase of the Bible, you may have seen it, the Phillips translation, great little translation, also wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in it, he talks about how all of us have pictures of God that are not accurate. They're too small. They are not big enough to handle life. He starts out this way, the trouble with many people today is they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. Now he wrote 50 years ago, so let me change that. We have not found a God big enough for postmodern needs. Therefore, to join in with the worship of a church would be to become party to a piece of mass hypocrisy and to buy a sense of security at the price of the sense of truth if your God is really too small. He gives several pictures of gods that are too small, ideas of God. Let me just highlight just a few of these. One he calls the resident policeman. (laughs) This is when you see God as basically a policeman who's blowing and whistle every time you blow it. He's your conscience trying to make you feel bad. And Phillips says this, It's extremely unlikely that we shall ever be moved to worship, love, and serve a nagging inner voice that at worst spoils our pleasure and at best keeps us rather negatively on the path of virtue. That's an inadequate view of God as a resident policeman. Another inadequate view is the parental hangover, he calls it. (laughs) This is the view that God is whatever my parents were. If my parents were really harsh then God's harsh. Or if my parents were really nice, then God's really nice. But in either case, it's a very inadequate view of who God is. God is so much greater than our parents could ever be. It just produces guilt and limitation. A third inadequate view of God that he mentions is the grand old man. <laughs> this is kind of the idea that God is this old man sitting on his throne and He knew how to handle life a long time ago, you know, Grandpa. But today is far too complex for him. God really can't understand a world as crazy as ours and with all the technological advances. So we really can't look to God to help us today. 
He was great for biblical times, but not today. A fourth inadequate view of God is the meek and mild God. This is kind of pictured in Sunday school, kind of the Sunday school Jesus and the children and the lambs are all gathering around him and isn't he nice and Jesus is really nice and wants us to be really nice. (laughs) That's comforting, but it's so inadequate to handle the mess in which we live and the sin with which I struggle and the garbage within me and around me. Rabbi Kushner wrote a book a few years back, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and this was essentially his view of God. God's really nice. He really cares about the hard stuff we go through, but he has no power to deal with it. A fifth inadequate view of God is God in a box, Philip says. This is the idea that God is whatever my church defines him as, and God really likes my church best. And so our church has the right view of God. Yours doesn't, but, you know, he fits in this nice little box. He doesn't really impact the world out there very much, but, you know, he's really fun to be with in church. (laughs) That's God in the box. And then the final view that I want to highlight, he mentions more, but is the perennial grievance God. This is the person who says, you know, I thought God was this way and I tried to trust him, but he let me down. Life hasn't gone the way I thought it would. He didn't answer prayer as I thought he should. And as Philip says, these people are wanting a world in which good is rewarded and evil is punished always. As in a well-run kindergarten. Of course we want justice, don't we? We want evil to be judged and good to be rewarded and it will come someday, but if that's what you demand that God be, you have a very immature kindergarten level view of God. These are all inadequate views of God because God is awesome and mysterious and far beyond our understanding. He's far greater than we can ever grasp. And so we're left with this question, will we submit to him as Lord as he is or will we turn away from him because he's not what we think he should be? If you follow one of these gods, these inadequate gods that J.B. Phillips talks about, I wouldn't worship him either because he's not big enough to handle the mess of life that we live in. Do you want to know God as he is or do you want to hold on to an inadequate view of him that can't handle the hard questions of life? Habakkuk was confused. He was wrestling with God and in this first chapter we're left hanging, wondering. But Habakkuk does something wonderful. He reminds himself of what he does know about God And he's honest about what's going on around him. And then he says, okay, God, I will wait on you. He does not give up on God. Mark Laberton says this. 
We've been made for relationship with God. Therefore, it's not surprising that we long to meet and know God. But the God we seek is the God we want, not the God who is. We fashion a God who blesses without obligation, who lets us feel his presence without living his life, who stands with us and never against us, who gives us what we want when we want it. We worship a God of consumer satisfaction, hoping that the talismans of guitars and candles or organs and liturgy will put us in touch with God as we want him to be. So the question is, do we want to know the true God? Let me encourage you to three things to help you know the true God. As you wrestle with the big questions of life, read the word, because that's where God reveals himself to us, the true God. And open yourself up to say, God, reveal yourself to me. Don't worry if you don't understand everything. You don't have to. Or if it challenges you, but ask him to reveal himself through the word. Secondly, look to Jesus. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, Hebrews chapter 1. And Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not a Sunday school Jesus, but the Jesus that's truly revealed in the Gospels. He's he's far too big for us to handle. If you really read it as it's written. And then third, you want to know the true God? Look at the cross. Habakkuk didn't have the cross to look back on, but we do. And the cross is the perfect place to get to know this awesome, incredible God who, even when life is crazy, we can know that, number one, he's holy because he had to judge sin. But number two, he's absolutely loving because he took the punishment on himself that we deserved. So when you wrestle with life and the questions that are too big for you to handle, always look to the cross and remember what it reveals about a God who is holy but absolutely loving. Let God expand your view of who he is because for all of us, our God is too small. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging book. But as we study this book over the next couple of weeks and we see how Habakkuk wrestles with you and what it means to see you in a deeper way than ever before, may our eyes be open. May we see you more clearly for who you really are and not as the inadequate God that we have made you to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.